this evening. And uh, so good to see every one of you here today. And um, certainly miss Pastor Mark and Allie and all their children. Pray for them, for their healing and their strength and their recovery. Beginning in John's Gospel, chapter 1, looking at verse 1, reading through verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word of God, or the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were revealed or realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only Begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That is indeed God's Word to God's people. The Bible says that the grass withers and the flower fades away, but God's Word endures forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful, God, for Your Word. God, You tell us that Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I'm reminded, God, of what David said about your word, that he would actually so cherish your word that he would hide it in his heart that he might not sin against you. Thank you, God, that you've actually magnified your word above your name. God, you said that your word would go forth and it would never return to you void or empty or useless of power, but it would indeed accomplish what you please and prosper in the place where you send it. Jesus, you even said that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Lord, you instruct us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Thank you, God, that even Peter said it's by the word of God, a seed that's incorruptible that we're born again. The Word of God. So God, we thank You tonight for Your Word. Holy Spirit, we look to You. You're the teacher. Jesus said You would guide us and lead us into all truth. 
God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are ready and receptive to receive the living, abiding Word of God. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I must admit to you that I love Christmas. I don't know if you're like me, but again, I'm like a child when it comes to Christmas. In fact, some of my fondest memories growing up was Christmas. Still is for that matter, especially when you've got children and you've got eight grandchildren. Range from the age two to uh, age 11 and see how they get excited about the Christmas and the gifts and the things that we normally do as family. In fact, I've got one granddaughter named Kenley. She's eight years old. And how many of you appreciate FaceTime? You enjoy that, right? Especially when it comes to family, your children or grandchildren. And Kenley would love to FaceTime me, and they all, all my grandchildren call me Papa D. And Kenley would FaceTime me, and she says, Papa D. She talks like this, Papa D. What do you call a dog with no legs? I said, Kenley, I don't know. What do you call a dog with no legs? She says, it doesn't matter what you call him, he ain't coming to you. <laughs> love those grandchildren. Love this time of the year. Love their heart their sense of humor, their excitement, and the things that they bring to our lives as we love them so dearly and we're so thankful for them. I can remember vividly as a young boy, probably around five or six or seven years old, I sang in the choir, the church I grew up in, and our, our children's choir was called the Melody Makers. In fact, my mom, God bless her, she's in heaven now, but she had a picture of me and all that were in the children's choir And here I am standing erect with this white shirt, this little black bow tie and black pants. And I remember for me growing up, church was never an option. When Sunday come around, we were in church. I grew up with Sunday school, church, training union, church. Wednesday night was prayer meeting night. We had our RAs, a a thing for the guys. GAs, a thing for the girls. We had had, uh, the way I learned the books of the Bible was we had sword drills. It basically was you take your Bible... You know, it says, uh, take your Bible, draw swords. Turn to John 3, 16. And then we found it first, we'd read it. That's how I learned the books of the Bible. We had sword drills. And I remember that as well as I'm looking at you right now. And I'm so thankful for that because much of what I learned about Jesus as a child was by the wonderful people that taught me the gospel in Sunday school. And the one story I never got tired of listening to was the birth of Christ. Always wanted to know about Jesus, his birth, and what that meant. I think the one thing that fascinated me was the star, the magi, the wise men that were following to come to Jesus in Bethlehem. I don't know if you had this kind of imagination when you were a child, if you even thought about things like this, but what I would do is is on Christmas Eve night, and we lived in the country, no street lights, no paved roads, everything was dirt. I mean, when night come, it was dark, unless you had a porch light on your house. And on a clear night, you could go out and look up in the sky, and it was so brilliant. It's like you could see every star. 
You know, when you're a child, you try to count. It doesn't last long. There's no way you can do it. But I would try to figure out on Christmas Eve maybe where that star was that the Magi followed or the wise men followed to get to Christ. I would see a large, uh, large star and I would imagine that was it. And I would begin to think about things like a stable. Now, when you're five years old, you might have an idea of what a stable is. But, but when I begin to find out what it was and begin to try to imagine what it was like where there would be no room in an inn, but yet the only room that would be for Mary and Joseph. And, of course, we know that she gave birth to her son. There was no midwives. There was no paramedics. There was no 911 to call. She actually gave birth to Christ herself. I don't know how much Joseph could have helped her, but she did. With the grace of God, she delivered Jesus. And then when I realized that a stable is a place where you kept animals, my little mind or this big head with this peanut brain couldn't really comprehend. I mean, you know, I thought when I grew up, people were born in a hospital and not a stable, not a place where animals are and where there's probably the stench of Various odors and different things that you normally would smell in a, in a stable. And then when I found out that what they laid him in was not a crib, was not a bassinet, but it was a feeding trough that the animals ate out of. And then when I realized and I began to read scriptures like Second Chronicles, excuse me, Isaiah seven fourteen, where it talks about God would give us a sign. And that sign would be that there would be a woman that is a virgin with child and he'll be a son and we'll call his name Emmanuel. What is interesting in that text in Isaiah seven fourteen is we know generally that Emmanuel is translated to mean God with us. But in the Old Testament there, the Hebrew, it literally meant God is with us. God is with us. And when I begin to comprehend that and then I saw that Matthew quoted exactly verbatim what Isaiah said in Matthew one twenty three that they will give him his his name will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. I begin to realize that that as much as I could understand at such a young age, I could comprehend Emmanuel meaning God with us. And I begin to think, I said, you mean to tell me that in that feeding trough, that's God? That's God lying in that feeding trough in flesh? And then I begin to read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says that, that unto us a son will be given, a child will be born, and we'll call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or Eternal Father, or Eternal God, or the Prince of Peace. I mean, everything indicates that really what was in that feeding trough was God. It was God in flesh. In fact, the very essence of Christmas is that when you and I could not come to God, He came to us. That's the essence of Christmas. That's the joy. That's the glory. That's what we rejoice in. That's what we thank God for. That when we couldn't come to God, He came to us. And as I begin to grow in my faith, and I begin to become more astute in Scripture, and particular theology and doctrines about the Incarnation, And I really began to see that what I knew to believe as much as I knew to believe as a child and what I grew to understand about 
Christ, about the incarnation, about Emmanuel, God being with us, and knowing that when we couldn't come to Him, He came to us. See, see, that's the beauty of Christianity. That's the power of the truth, what it means to be apprehended by God. That's, that's the power and the truth of knowing that God will indeed save His elect, and He will redeem, and He will save and that, and that call is so efficacious, all that He calls will come to Him. But it's to realize and understand that the difference between what some would call a religion and what we would call God redeeming those He elects is to realize that there's nothing I can do to come to Him to receive that on my own. Jesus, in His eternality, left heaven. God in flesh. Verse 14 of John 1 says, And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, the essence of Christmas is the glory of God. The essence of Christmas, again, is when we couldn't come to Him, He came to us. And the power and the truth about that reality is knowing That in His own incarnation, this is exactly what took place. God became something He had never been without ceasing to be what He had always been. That's the incarnation. God became something He had never been. Flesh. Feeding trough. Emmanuel. God with us without ceasing to be what He had always been. And that indeed was His deity, Christ our Savior, our Lord. In fact, when you look at John's Gospel and you study this, I think in these 18 verses, John gives us a profound theology. It's profound. It's huge. In fact, these 18 verses communicates the most powerful truth in the universe. In these 18 verses. In fact, John's presentation of the deity of Christ is the overview of the entire Gospel of John. I mean, how does it end near chapter 20? You know what it says. We know this verse very well in John 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, therefore, many other signs, verse 30 of John 20 Therefore, many are the signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. There it is. The Son of God. And that believing you may have life in His name. We know all the of the I am's of Christ, the seven I am's, ego, amis. Chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life that's come down from heaven. Chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. Chapter 10, I'm the door of the sheep. Chapter 10, again, I'm the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I'm the resurrection of the life. Chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, of the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. I am is again derived from Exodus 15. When Moses asked God, okay, you're sending me to Egypt. You're going to rescue and bring out of bondage Israel. Now, who am I going to say sent me? He says, you tell them this. You tell them I am that I am has sent you. 
And there's where we receive the very covenant name of God that is indeed the Lord's name, Yahweh. All-sufficient God, totally self-sufficient, answers to no one. No one's above Him, no one's beneath Him, no one's to His side or whatever. He is self-sustaining, self-sufficient. He is Yahweh. And what we see revealed here, even deeper in John's Gospel, is the truth that Christ is everything that God says He is and everything that God says is true about Him, especially in John's Gospel when it comes to understanding that the essence of Christmas is God coming to you when you could not on your own come to Him. That call is so efficacious that it's irresistible. Jesus said twice in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Twice. Will come to me. And he went further to add in John 6 that, that you won't come to me either unless the Father draws you to come to me. So this to me is the most powerful. Sometimes I, I, I find it difficult to try to express what it means to me understanding the power and the truth and what the essence of Christmas is really all about. You know, I get it, folks. I know that probably Jesus probably was not necessarily born this time of the year. I know the reason why we think there were three wise men because there were three gifts, but the truth is there was more than three of them. It's like a caravan of them with an entourage. We get the three wise men for the three gifts, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And chances are, by the time the wise men got to Christ, he was already a toddler. He was already a toddler. Could have been about two years old, maybe. But here's the point. He was born, and we celebrate it. He was born, and we celebrate it. And the reason why we celebrate it is because when we couldn't come to him... He came to us in our sinful state, in our wretchedness, in our depravity. We don't deserve this. You know that. None of us deserve this. But God, out of His grace and deep affection, love and mercy, said in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have eternal life. So again, the incarnation is God became something He had never been without ceasing to be what He had always been. So these opening verses here in John's Gospel, John talks about the very nature of Christ. John introduces Jesus as the Word. The Word. The Logos. Best to be maybe just understood the word Logos for the word Word here which is the word Logos all three times in verse 1. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Logos of the Word was with God, and the Word, the Logos, was God. It's to say that the Logos is the sum total of all God's expression revealed in the Word of God. It's what it is. 
And so, again, knowing that the opening verses, John talks about the nature of Christ and John introduces Jesus as the word. And this is really a metaphor which speaks of Christ as coming from God. As God revealing himself. As God disclosing himself and God speaking to us through the son from himself and through Christ. In fact, when John says the word was in the beginning, in other words, Jesus already existed when everything, when everything that began began, which means he's eternal. You don't hear much talk today about the pre-existence of Christ. But He's always been. And He always will be. We learn in the catechism lesson a while ago, God revealed in three persons, in essence, in eternality, in person. We get it. One God but revealed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And there's some people that would choose to believe that no, we, we believe in more what we would call a modalist perspective of this. We don't embrace the Trinity. We believe in one God, so when God wants to be God, He puts His God hat on. And then when He beats Jesus, He takes His God hat off and He puts His Jesus hat on. And then when it wants to be the Holy Spirit, He takes His Jesus hat off and puts His Holy Spirit hat on. And that's the way we see it. But folks, that was one of the most heretical things that ever emerged in the first century church that caused a lot of problems for a lot of people because it is heretical. No, you won't find the word Trinity. But yet it is clear. It is clear that God is one, but yet revealed in three persons. In essence, in power, in eternality, And in being always and always will be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So John says the Word was in the beginning. In other words, Jesus already existed when everything that began began, which means He is eternal. That's what it means. Revelation 1.17, Revelation 2.8 and Revelation 22.13 identifies Christ as I, He said Himself, I am the first and the last. Jesus said that about Himself. That was Jesus' own self affirmation that He said about Himself. I am the first and the last. In fact, when He was um, addressing the church in Smyrna, the church that was known that Jesus knew them because of their tribulation, their, their suffering, their great persecution. Actually, in verse 8 of Revelation 2, Jesus identifies himself as the eternal one by saying he's the first and the last. That's what that implies. When Jesus said, I'm the first and the last, he's saying, I am the eternal one. I've always been. I always will be. I'm as just as eternal in my nature as God is and even as the Holy Spirit is. So this title identifies Jesus' eternality. The first and the last, it identifies His eternality. Before time existed, Jesus was already in existence. And He will be in existence after all things come to an end. 
And from eternity past to eternity future, Jesus has been, is, and will always be the eternal, infinite one. Nothing within time presents any limitations for him, Christ. So when John again speaks of these things in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If He indeed is eternal, Scriptures prove that beyond a doubt. It is to say He was with God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So He was with God, which means though He was God, He was at the same time distinct from God. He was with God and was God. That is Trinitarian. That simply means there is one God, as we said, and yet three persons. And so Jesus is God and yet He is with God. So in the beginning, when everything came into existence, that came into existence, Jesus was. He was. Jesus eternally existed. That being is to say Jesus is God in human flesh. That is, He is the creator of the universe. Verse 3, all things came into being through Him and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Who has become a part of his own creation. He is pure, eternal being who has become a man. That is to say that John's message is that Jesus is not a created man. He is God in human flesh. Here's the essence of Christmas. The splendor, the wonder, the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God and the word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that do to your heart? How, how, how do you respond to that emotionally and mentally? And I know I'm being redundant, but when you and I could not come to Him, there's nothing you could do to save yourself. There's nothing you could do to appease God. There's nothing you could do to merit the grace, the mercy, and the tender love and precious power of God through Christ that redeems you and saves you. We've got to get this. I do believe you get it, but let's really get it. When you couldn't do this for yourself, God did it for you. He did it for you. He did it for all those that Paul said in Ephesians 1 was in Christ before the worlds were made as we know it in Ephesians chapter 1. That is the essence of Christmas. That is the central truth of Christianity. In these first 13 verses, John is saying here that the one true eternal God became human. 
that the infinite one became finite and that the eternal one entered time that he created and that the omnipresent one became confined in the space of a human body and that the invisible one became visible. He became a part of what he created. Can somebody please say amen? Amen. It's powerful, isn't it? God became something He had never been without ceasing to be what He had always been. That's verse 14. The deity of Christ is not diminished by His humanity, nor is His humanity overpowered by His deity. So the Word became flesh. And then John says, and dwelt among us. That literally means that he pitched a tent. He pitched pitched a tent. He brought his tent to us, settled down in our world. And for 33 years, he lived in our world, took on the form of man, and came became one of us. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, And he who knew no sin was made to be sin, so that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. What does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ was never a sinner. He remained to be just as much God as he was a, a man in flesh. Very much God, very much man, all God, all man. But never one time did he ever sin, but God treated him as though he did commit every sin you and I would ever commit and have committed and will commit in the future. Although he didn't commit one. He didn't commit one. Gosh, it's not that wonderful. He never committed a sin, but God treated him on the cross as though he committed every sin you have and will ever commit, although he never committed one. He became sin and new sin that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. The perfect impartation of righteousness is credit to your account. That's justification that puts you absolutely in a position before God in right standing. That in Christ you stand before God in Christ perfect, redeemed. You belong to him. You're saved. It's done. It's over. You're his. You're his. So how do we know He was God? How do we know He was God? I think John gives us three important statements. And what is interesting is that every statement, every word begins with G. Makes it easy to remember. Glory, grace, and God. Verse 14, He says we saw His glory. We saw His glory. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. What is that glory? Well, the Bible speaks of intrinsic glory of God. That is who He is. Everything that God is in terms of His attributes is indeed His intrinsic glory. But not only do we understand the importance of of, of grasping His intrinsic glory, but what about His manifest glory? Isn't that what is displayed here? I mean, you think about it again, as we said so many times, when you couldn't come to God, He came to you. And when you came to the truth and repented and obeyed 
and, and did what Scripture said about repentance and obedience and obeyed what he said about being a Christian was again a demonstration of what is manifested through his glory that he puts on display in your heart when he graces you to repent. You know what it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace alone, because of faith alone, because of Christ alone, through Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, all the solas, you're saved. So that first thing that is evident about what John gives us in these important statements about the essence of Christmas is that we saw His glory. Displaying His divine glory. God's glory, as I said, is intrinsic to His nature. It is who He is. Have you ever really thought about that? Has that ever been anything that just captivated your thoughts as you're reading the Scripture, as you're praying, as you're reading every day, as you're growing, as you're maturing? Do you ever stop to realize that every time you open the pages of this book, this is God speaking to you? This is indeed God putting on display His glory to you? You talk about the glory of God. You can't talk about the glory of God without talking about the person of God. You can't talk about the glory of God without talking about the power of God. And you can't talk about God without talking about the presence of God. His person, His power, His presence. There's another G. Verse 13 also says that He was full of grace. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? What is grace? Unmerited favor. I love what Chuck Swindoll said one time. God in His grace gives us what we don't deserve, but in His mercy He doesn't give us what we do deserve. I believe that, don't you? Unmerited favor. The grace of God. He says, we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten, that unique Son, which again, completely, again, proves the deity of Christ. Just in that statement there. Full of grace. Full of grace. Grace, the empowerment. Grace that enables you to believe. Do you realize you need grace to believe? Do I realize I need grace to believe? Do you realize you need this this working of grace in your life that compels you to obey? That empowers you to surrender to Christ? That enables you? I mean, what did Paul say? Pastor uh, Mark did a great job in teaching in Philippians 2, 13, 12 and 13, where he said, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trim because it's God in you that will cause you to will and to do of His good pleasure. There's the grace of God. God in you causing you to will and to do of His good pleasure. It almost seems like He's done everything that needs to be done. We just need to obey. We just need to do what He says. We just need to yield and obey and do what He says. We saw His glory. It was full of grace. The incarnation of Christ dispenses His grace. 
The only way you can experience grace is by believing the truth. Believing the truth. Verse 16, grace upon grace, never ending supplies what it implies. For of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, an endless supply, fresh. Lamentation says in chapter 3 that God makes His mercies new to us every day. His compassions never fail because His faithfulness is great. If God graces you and me to wake up in the morning and greet another morning, the first thing that you will greet is God's mercy, God's compassion, and God's faithfulness. And the last thing, the incarnate Christ again defines God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God which is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Who is that? Who is that talking about? Christ. The incarnate Christ defines God. Jesus displays glory. Jesus dispenses grace. And Jesus defines God. The essence of Christmas is the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, God, for the truth of Your Word. God, as we conclude our time together, uh, I pray, God, that in our hearts there would be a, a reviving, as it were, of truly why we look at Christmas as much as we enjoy gifts, exchanging gifts, the lights, just the emotions, the feeling of Christmas. We get that, Lord. We understand. But God, we must realize more than anything that You became something You had never been without ceasing to be what You'd always been. And for that, God, we give You praise. We give You glory. In Jesus' name, amen.